Well, good morning, all. Greetings from Collingswood. My name is Jerry. Uh, I'm one of the pastors at the Collingswood campus. I serve there with Ben Willie, um, and it is my privilege to address you this morning. I don't know if you've ever, ever been to Collingswood, but typically we watch your service from there. Uh, so to be on this side is a little bit freaky. Um, <clears throat> a, lot of, a lot of people here. And I just got to say this, uh, preaching three times on a Sunday, like what are you people thinking? This is crazy. This is, if you ever want to ruin somebody's Sunday morning, make them preach three times in a row. <laughs> and your poor pastor does this all the time. Anyway. We're going to, this morning, um, we're going to be looking at, this, at the um, book of Job. So every story, his name. We'll be continuing that series. Uh, when it first came out and they, they presented it, the pastors were talking about it, and uh, I was asked if I wanted to maybe preach one of these Sundays. Um, I didn't even hesitate. Um, first I asked, can I, can I tell the story of Job? And the answer came back, yes, you can. So I was there. To me... Nothing whispers his name quite like the story of Job. Right now, we're in the middle of our, um, well, not even to the middle yet, but we're in the process of training our uh, first class of Stephen ministers. There's many of you here. Uh, it's nice to see your faces. Um, we begin again. We took the month off, and we begin again uh, in, uh, on Tuesday evening. To me, when I'm in Stephen ministry mode, uh, Job is at the forefront of my thought, uh, and it has been as long as I've been involved with Stephen ministry. I, I taught this book. It was my very first foray into teaching adults. I was, uh, it was 25 years ago. I was 33 years old. I don't know why I chose Job. Bit off a lot more than I could chew. And I was teaching the seniors class at Grace Bible Church in Barrington. And many of the men who were teachers at Grace and had been for a long time, men that I loved and respected, were sitting now under my teaching, which was a daunting task. And they were so gentle with me and so kind gracious in, in their comments and also in um, their appreciation of what I was teaching. I had no idea at the time, though, what, I was, uh, what Job would do to me personally. Job, uh, it, it rises up in the person, in the reader. If it doesn't, you're probably not reading it, but it raises up questions, existential questions, questions about life, questions about meaning, questions about really what it means to be a follower of God in this world that God created for us. And it sort of throws everything into turmoil. Um, and then it doesn't really settle it back down for you. That's not the point. It's, to, it's more to not to answer your questions as much as it is to get, to you, get you to question your answers, I believe. So I want to start. We can't do this um, story. We can't do this story justice if I don't at least share it with you. Let me make sure my clock is going. After three servants... Um, so I, I set this clock each time. I have it set for 35 minutes. I was told 42 minutes is absolute. At 42 minutes, you're done. You have to be done. The first two sermons, I was done at 42 minutes. So 35 minutes, I don't even know why I put it in there. But this time, I know that there is no ending. So I could preach forever. <laughs> Actually, the 35 minutes is for me more than for you. Because I just feel like toast at this point. But let me read. We're going to read the, the book, the story at the beginning of the book of Job. I'm going to read from chapter 1, 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. Um, and you can follow along in your pew Bible. I'll be reading from the ESV. And let's jump right in. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in his house, and on the, in the house of each one on his day, probably on their birthday, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day, probably, this probably uh, was the lunar new year. It's probably, it's a significant day. It's not just any old day. Probably this was the new year or something like that. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come, where, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters, now just wait a minute. Stop. Let me breathe. Give me a minute. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job rose. And he tore his robes and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, 
only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive disaster? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So there in the first scene in heaven, God calls Job to Satan's attention. And in his scoffing reply, Satan asks a question that will occupy the majority of the rest of this book, all 42 chapters. It goes like this. This is what he said. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. This becomes the big question. It's presented to Job multiple times throughout this book. The question is this, is God worthy of our worship? It's a little more specific. Is he worthy of our worship for absolutely no reason? Are you in this for God or are you in this for what you can get out of him? Or this, is God worth everything? Really? Maybe a corollary would be, why do believers live as they do? Why do believers believe? Immediately after the scene in heaven, Job's wife continues Satan's, or he asks, she asks Job the question that God proposed way back at the beginning of the story. But she forms it like this. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Or maybe it's like this. Now, dear husband of mine, now that we've lost everything and we have nothing left to lose, cut the charade. Let's just get this over with. Say the words, curse him, and let him kill us too so that we can end our misery. Job's three friends are going to ask this question repeatedly, incessantly, throughout the rest of this book. And it's going to come to Job in many forms. And nobody ever answers. Job will find. What this does is it exposes, it exposes for us our linear thinking. It exposes the way that we approach life. Job's three friends and Job, until this moment, Job probably thought the same way. To his three friends, the answer is really quite simple. These are individuals who live life according to a carefully prescribed manner. And if we live this way, we know that this life will provide for us protection and safety and God's blessing. Sounds like religious people, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like us. We know if we live this way, we walk this way, we do these things, we should expect the blessing of God. And I need to say this, that there is absolutely blessing, blessing, and we're going to call it divine blessing, for living your life according to God's way. But that's not, that's not on, 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 on trial here at all. There is blessing. And that blessing is true for you, 
a follower of Jesus Christ, and it's also true for your atheist neighbor. If you and your neighbor both live by the golden rule, and you both say, do unto others the way I would have them do unto you, and you take that, you as an atheist walk into your workplace, and you live that day, and I'm just going to treat people the way I want to be treated, you better believe that there will be blessing in your life. There will be peace in your life, peace between you and your coworkers. If you live like that at home, there will be peace in your home. Why? Because this is the way it is designed to be. This is a true, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or you're not, the rain falls on the just and the unjust just the same. If you don't want to take my word for it, have you ever read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie? Anybody? Here's a man who just capitalized on biblical principle. That's all. If you just live your life this way, and he got them right out of Scripture, and you take that to work, guess what? You're going to succeed in your workplace. If you, if you, put, if you apply that to your business, your business is going, to, is going to boom. Why? Because this stuff just makes sense. There is blessing for living life a prescribed way. In his book, um, The Pressure's Off, Dr. Larry Crabb calls this the, line, the law of linearity. I'll say this now because I forgot to say it before, but he'll, he's gonna, in his book, he um, juxtaposes the law of linearity, linearity against the law of liberty. But this law of linearity, it's really very simple. All you have to do is figure out what you want, figure out what you have to do to get what you want, and then you have to do what you have to do to get what you want. It's that simple. A plus B equals C. The A plus B side, that, that side of the equation, that belongs to me. And the other side belongs to, if we're God people, God followers, it belongs to God. So C is what I want. And in our case, because at least we're going to say the right things, I just want God's protection and blessing. But what does that look like? And it look different for you than it look for me because you care about different things than I care about. It could be money, it could be prestige, power, love, respect, having a spouse, having good kids, or maybe just having kids, peace, safety, security, stability, friendship, all fine things. That's what I want. Now, how do I get it? This isn't particularly Christian. It's human. It's what you, it's when the, the moment we came kicking and screaming from the womb, and in those, those months before we ever even developed a memory, we began to learn how to make this law, this equation work for us. You cry to get what you want. So you have a dirty diaper, you cry, you fuss. Huh, they came when that happened. You're hungry, you cry. Huh, they came. You begin to cry to get what you want, right? Well, maybe you live in a home where maybe crying, maybe, maybe you're the Davidsons and you've got 47 children. Crying at no, poor little Jethro doesn't, doesn't help anymore, right? Because there's 47 of us. And you know what? It's just another crying baby. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, thank, it's so good to see you guys. Anyway, now where was I? Oh, so it doesn't work. So you know what? You learn a, you learn a new way. And maybe it is being really nice. Maybe I just learn if, I, if I'm really nice to people, if I, if, I'm, if I do everything that makes my dad happy, my dad responds positively toward me. So I learn to become a people pleaser. When you're 35, if crying to get what you want has worked for you, guess what? You're just a 35-year-old crybaby. I'm sorry if I'm hurting anybody's feelings. <laughs> But there's probably some in here, right? You've learned that if I just fuss and fume enough, I get what I want. And if you learned that by making people happy, then you're probably a 35-year-old people pleaser. And you live in the prison of just trying to make people happy, right? Because at least I can make it work. And all we're really doing is we're just trying to make it work, which is, it's no small task. And I'm not holding, and you can't be held to blame. 
because we all just want to make it work. I think that the best working definition for the flesh that I've ever come up with is this very thing. It's just making life work for me. What do I have to do to make life work for me? And it's a little bit different for you than it is for me, or it could be very different for you than it is for me, but it's what we have to do. The writers of the New Testament use that word, and when they do, they're, they're challenging that. It doesn't work that way anymore. It doesn't have to work that way anymore, and you can be free from that type of living. This raises issue number one with the law of linearity. And it's that it results in a pressure-filled life. The pressure's on me. I've got to do this. If we apply it to this principle to our Christianity, to our faith, then it becomes a, a pressure-filled Christianity, a pressure-filled faith. I just have to keep the balls in the air. If I can keep the balls in the air, then I know what I can expect. Life is a balance. It's an awkward dance. And if I miss a step, it might all come crashing down around me. So I just spend my life keeping the balls in the air, uh, keeping the balance. And this explains very clearly uh, the response that Job received from his three friends. As the story goes through, as it unfolds, they become more and more aggravated with Job. They become angry. They become um, heated, frustrated. They begin actually to become absolutely mean-spirited. At one point, one of his friends even says, goes so far, well, one says, Job, you didn't, you're, you're not getting all that you deserve. And one even goes far, as far as to say, Job, your friends, I mean, your, your, your children deserved worse than they got. I don't know what's worse than dying with your house falling on top of you, but somehow they deserved worse than that. All Job has to do, it's very simple, all Job has to do is tell the truth. Job, just say what you did, and God will forgive you, and we'll make it right with man, and we can get back to where we were. We can reestablish the balance. We'll get you off that ash heap. We'll get you back to being a great man with your sheep and your cows and your, everything will be good. All we have to do is get you back. And if Job, Job does so, if Job takes their advice, then he will have proved that Satan is right. And Satan was right all along. And that's what's at stake here in this book of Job. Satan will have won the day. If, all, if Job says, you know what, I don't care. It doesn't matter that I haven't done anything wrong and that I'm telling the truth now. That doesn't matter. I just want the blessing. I just want to get back. I, I hate the sores. Look at my wife. Look at the way my wife's looking at me. Look at the way that the people are talking about it. I just got to get back to that place. So whatever I have to do, God, just take this away. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. I don't know what I did, but I'm sorry for what I did. Just get me back to that place. Just get me back. Satan will have won the day. Job will have lost his integrity. And Satan will have proven once and for all that mankind fears God only for what God can buy for us. We only want what we can get. God is not intrinsically worthy of our worship or anybody's. God has to buy our love. And that's what's happening on the one side of the ash heap, on Job's side of the ash heap, on the friend's side of the ash heap. But on the other side, where Job sits, there's another problem with the law of linearity that's being exposed. And this one is particularly um, painful for people of faith. What happens when we keep our end of the bargain, our end of the equation, but God seemingly does not? 
I know what I have to do. I'm doing what I know I have to do. And I'm not getting what I want. I, I'm getting what I don't want. What happens when the bottom falls out? What happens when the center refuses to hold? What happens when our health fails or we lose our source of income or our loved one dies unexpectedly? Or no matter how much we spend or how hard we try, we can't get pregnant? What happens when our child is sick or injured or when we're abandoned or rejected by a friend or a spouse or a parent or a child? What happens when our kids don't turn out the way we raise them or we hit that milestone, milestone and we're still single? And what happens when there's still no answer to this chronic, unending pain? This is what leads to issue number two. The law of linearity exposes here is that if I keep my side of the equation, but God does not, the result is disappointment with God. God failed. I did what I had to do. I'm doing what I have to do. And God failed me. Nothing asks this big question. Is God worthy of our worship? Is God worthy? Nothing asks this question quite like suffering. And suffering, I'm gonna, suffering in every form, suffering involves a, a form of loss. Something is lost, whether it's perceived loss or it's actual loss, loss of whatever. I, be, I find myself in a place of suffering. And it forces me into this place where along with whatever physical things I might be encountering in this loss, in this suffering, it throws us into an existential crisis. It begins, I begin, I am forced to ask questions like, where is God when it hurts? And God, what are you doing? Why am I alive? Why did you let me be born? God, why do you continue this way? What is this life all about anyway? For those of us who are believers, this is where it gets tricky. For those of us who are believers, and please, no, no tomatoes or stones. We get to this place knowing that there is a God that knows does not make it easier. It makes it harder. We know the stories. We know about Daniel in the lion's den, and we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know about opening a Red Sea, and we know about food falling right out of the sky, and here I am crying out to my God, and he's not hearing me. He's not moving. There's no answer. God, you are, you are my friend, and where have you gone? God, I can't find you anywhere. I don't know where you are. This is Job's complaint. If, if it would be so simple, if we could just chalk it up to bad luck, wouldn't it? If a guy just say, well, you know what, my luck ran out. Oh, well, tomorrow's a new day. Or if this is just a random act of the universe that isn't smiling toward me anymore, wouldn't that be easier? We could just walk away from it. We could just say, hey, you know what, it's just, it's just bad karma. But we can't do that. Why? Because, because we're followers of God, because we believe. This is a problem. We believe, whether we want to or not. We can't. We have believed, and now we find ourselves in a place where we can't not believe. It's not like I turned on this switch, and now I can just turn it off until this bad stuff goes away. After a very hard teaching, where Jesus shared about consuming his, his flesh and his blood, he lost many of his disciples. In John chapter 6, John chapter 6, 
Jesus turned to his disciples, the 12, and he said, uh, do you want to leave too? You want to go too? And you remember Peter's response. He said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We have believed that you are the Messiah. Where are we going to go? I can't run anywhere. Because knowing what I know, I can't unknow it. Seeing what I've seen, I can't unsee it. I have this test for, for you, right? This is a silly little thing, but you're going you're gonna to humor me. Just for five seconds. For the next five seconds, I'll tell you when. Next five seconds, I want you to stop believing in God. Just shut it off, okay? Flip the switch. Okay, ready? Five seconds, go. No believing. How'd you do? How'd you do? Thumbs up? You were successful, right? You just flipped that switch, and you had five seconds where you didn't even have to think about him. Didn't even have to believe in him, right? And it didn't work, did it? Why? It's in these moments. It's when suffering, when suffering comes in like a wave, that we find out that our faith was a gift. It was a gift. It wasn't just this, this random choice that I made to believe something. It was an act of God. There was a renewal in my heart. And now knowing him, I can't unknow him. And now here I find myself in this place of trouble. And I still can't, I, I can't turn it off. I know him. You and I have to deal with this God. And this is where Job finds himself, in this existential crisis. Job is heartbroken because he lost his friend. He was God's friend. He knew that the blessings in his life were the, he said it, the blessings in his life were because God gives. God gives. We've received good from his hand. And if he could just make it better, maybe he would, but he can't. Why? Because he believes, and he's stuck. You and I, we can't walk away. We can't walk away in these moments, and like his disciples, we have nowhere else to go. This faith of ours is a gift, and it's precious. It's so precious that God himself purchased it for us with the only currency in his universe that matters to him at all, the life of his son. But we need to, because we're talking about this God with, with whom we have to do, let's take a minute and let's talk about this God. This God who's behind this poor man's suffering. It's too easy and it's too tempting for us to just say, God allows these things in our lives. That is too easy. And I'm not going to let you get off of that. And Job and God would not allow you to get away with that. This God of ours is so intimately involved in his life, there's, there's no way he would just allow something to happen to his own. Satan said to God, but stretch out your hand and touch, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And then after everything is lost, Job says, God, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. We go back to heaven. Now God is speaking to Satan. And he says, Job still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me to move my hand against him to destroy him without reason. And Job's response after being afflicted with boils as he's scraping himself with a piece of pottery while he's sitting on the town ash heap just seeking relief, he says to his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive disaster? 
throughout our story, God is given the credit, the blame, and God accepts the credit or the blame for all that has happened to this righteous man. Just give a minute. Just let that settle in for a second. So what's really going on? Is God just having a good time? You have that slide again? I'm sorry. Should I? I should have moved that slide to the other place. There it is. You're ready. You see this? This is one of my favorite far sides. I don't know if you can see that. But in all these random, you know, because there's always pianos dangling, uh, at least in cartoons, dangling from buildings, and people always walk around. There's God sitting at his computer. And it's, you see where his finger is? Or the button that says smite. He's just been waiting for this opportunity for this poor stiff to walk under the computer, under that piano so he can hit the smite button because that's the way God is, right? He's just having a good time. He's waiting for a chance to smite somebody. That's God. Not in the least. Who is this God? He's a God who does not play by our rules. He's a God who will not be manipulated or bargained with. It's not because he's an obstinate God, like an obstinate, stubborn child who won't do something because you ask him to do it. He's a God who is completely other than us. He's completely holy. This God does not fear our pain. He doesn't fear what we fear. He doesn't fear pain. He doesn't fear our distress. He doesn't fear our sickness. He doesn't fear our death. He doesn't even define life the way that we do. He's been telling us from the very beginning of his, of his revelation of himself to us that the, what we call life isn't really even life at all. There's, it's something else. It's something more. And this thing that we live, this thing that we do, this, this embodied animation is not what he even considers to be life, that there is so much more. And he makes no secrets about who he is or how he deals with us. In some of the best Verses in scripture, well, if I, most people, if you say, your favorite, give me your favorite verse, they're going to take us to Romans chapter 8 because it's just chock full of good ones. So right after saying all things work together for good, and if God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son but gave him for us, Paul lays down this piece of logic that should at least stop us in our tracks for a moment. And if he doesn't slow you down, you're probably not reading it. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. And we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Did you catch it? You should at least say, wait, what? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, those things can't separate you from God. Why? Because it's for his sake. It's for his sake. We're killed all the day long and considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Those are happy, good words, aren't they? That's what I signed up for. Think about it. Sword. It's got to be the worst way to die. I, it's the worst way I, that is probably right under being eaten by a shark. Sword. Terrible way to die. And this doesn't separate. The sword doesn't separate you from your God. The sword is your God's will. It's for his sake that we endure these things. There's a stunning feature in the New Testament. At no point, as the, as the persecution begins to build for that early church, at no point do the apostles or the, or the church leaders that followed them ever say, just lay low for a little while. Just, just let this storm pass. Don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Let it go. 
Instead, they welcome, they invite. Why? Because they knew that it is for his sake we're being killed all the day long. It is for your sake. So challenge number two then. What is God doing? This is the best part of the book of Job, I believe. But at the very end, God does show up. Job's friend does come. At this point, um, Job's not feeling very friendly for, toward him. But when he gets there, he never answers a single question that Job asked. How nice is that? Job's asked a thousand questions, and God answers not one. Instead, what he does is he shows up and he asks a thousand more questions, or at least a hundred more questions. All these questions that just don't even have answers or can't be answered, or they have one answer. And somehow, in what God says to Job when he shows up out of that whirlwind, he shows up, Job is satisfied with what God says. After two rounds, the second round, Job says he's satisfied. And this is, this is his answer. Then Job answered, I know that you can do all things and that no pers- purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge, you ask? I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me that I did not know. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you teach me. Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I'm sorry, and I repent, or literally, I am comforted in dust and ashes. Dust and ashes. Dust and ashes. And I'm good with this. I'm good with this. I don't, I don't need any more. What was it in... God's reply that brought Job to this place. This man who has issued his bitter complaint for 36 chapters. What brings him to this place now? God does not say one thing of substance in his answer to Job. He doesn't say one thing that Job, as a matter of fact, has not already said. So what is happening? I think after studying this book for a long time and being perplexed about this, I think I, I think I understand why. Why the, the response from Job? Why the satisfaction with God's answer? There is a rhetorical answer to each one of the questions that God asks Job. And its answer is this. It's me, Job. It's really me. So when he says, Job, where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, Job's answer, which he, he's not going to answer, Job's answer is, I wasn't there. But God's answer is, but I was. Job, where's the source of the light? Tell me if you know. And Job says, I don't know. God's answer is, but I know. Job, can you, can you rise up Leviathan and put him on a leash and play with him like a kitten on the floor? Job, can you do that? Job says, I I can't do that. And God's answer is, but I can. Job, this God that you've spoken of all throughout your complaint, it's me, Job, and I'm really here. I am here. And I was with you the whole time you sat on that ash heap, and I was silent, but I wasn't missing. I was here, and now I'm here in front of you. All that Job has asked for, all he has wanted this entire time, is for his God, his friend, to show up. All that he has wanted. Did you hear that? That's a crucial, key, crucial word. All that he has wanted 
God has now granted him. I want God. And now God's here. This crisis brought about in this righteous man the desire in his heart. He was happy. He had everything he needed. He brought up this crisis brought him to this point of desire. Okay, I miss my kids, and I always will. And I miss my standing and my status, and I, maybe I always will. But what I need right now and what I want right now is I just want my God. Larry Crabb, again, um, says it this way. He's talking about the old way or the law of linearity, this linear way of thinking. The old way promises a better life filled with good things that make me happy, but it never delivers, though it may seem to for a long time. The old way doesn't work for one reason. You never keep your end of the bargain, not completely. No one does. In the new way, he would call the law of liberty. In the new way, God first plants, listen, plants a desire in your heart, a longing that actually values his presence over his blessing. Then he invites you to live out that desire, to abandon yourself to what you want most. It takes you out of control, but it sets you free. The new way promises a better hope than the good things of this life. It promises nearness to God, and it delivers, though not always, right away, and often through suffering. Could it be that this is what God has wanted for this servant of his all along? Could it be that before any of this happened, that God determined that it was time to give his servant Job the best that he could ever give him. Could hear him maybe say, I've given my servant Job many good things. And I think he's almost ready to receive the best that I can give him. I'll give him myself. But first I have to make him just a little bit bigger. And I know how to do that. Before I can give myself to him, I need to, receive, I need to increase his, his capacity to receive. Is it possible that all of this, that everything that's transpired in this entire story between heaven and earth, all of it was to bring Job to this place where he was ready to see what God wanted him to see, a place where he was ready to receive all that God wanted him to receive. In the middle of our suffering, can you and I have the faith to believe that God has moved heaven and earth? to bring us to this place that he might give us something that he could not give us any other way. Let me say this. That faith is not cheap. It's not cheap. You know that it cost God dearly for you to have a faith, a big faith like that. It costs God, and I'm going to say that it's going to cost you dearly. As a matter of fact, it costs us our life. And that's the life that God is talking about. It will cost us our life to have this God. Can you hear God say, I know what you want, but I desire to give you something more. You and I are lucky people. We are lucky, lucky people. I use that word in the most religious sense. You and I are lucky people. Why? Because we have encountered God in our suffering, and we live among people who have encountered God in their suffering. It doesn't come like the first time. The first time that existential question is raised, but it isn't the last time the existential question is going to be raised. It's going to come again and again and again. Why? Because God will continue to increase you to, so you can continue to receive more and more of him. 
I don't want to embarrass Scott, but he's right here. We, on, a, on a Tuesday night not too long ago, we were in the foyer out here, and you all know this story. Faith, Faith was teaching. She was doing a fabulous job. I was so proud of her. And then she had an episode. Turned out she was having strokes. And she walked away, and as Faith fell on the, fell on the floor, we caught her. Um, as Faith went down, uh, not knowing what was going on, none of us know what's going on. I remember my brother Scott, who's become a friend of mine um, recently. Um, I remember the, the look of concern on Scott's face. It wasn't panic, but it was, it was pretty close. Deep concern as he watched. Well, I had just learned um, earlier in this year, I had, Scott told me his whole life story. So I knew that Scott has not, this isn't the, his first time around the block here. Scott's been here before. So I should not have been amazed. But as Scott and I are texting back and forth, and I'm just asking, how's your wife? And I'm trying not to bother him with too many texts. But every once in a while, I figure it's been long enough. I send him a text, how's, how's she doing? And none of the news he's given us is really good news. She's still in agony. The pain increases. He's trying to keep everybody he can away just to give her peace so he can focus just on her. So put yourself in Scott's shoes. I'm sorry, Scott, I didn't mean to do this. But put yourself in Scott's shoes. You're sitting next to your wife who's writhing in agony in a semi-conscious state, and you're crying out to God. You would be doing it just like I would. So I'm imagining me sitting in Scott's shoes, crying out to God and getting no answer. No answer, because she's still writhing in pain. And I would be making bargains with God, like, God, just give me the pain. God, I'll, I'll take the pain. God, why? Why, why does she have to? This is faith. Why does she have to go through this right now? That's, what, that's the mental gyrations that I'm going through. And what I get back from Scott is Jesus is so good. But that didn't come easy for Scott. It didn't come because Scott's never been around this block before. It's because he has and he knows. And the things that he didn't know at the time, that faith would never, wouldn't even remember these things. And God was gracious. And God was answering his prayer. But in this moment, in this moment, what is God doing? That's where I would have been. I'd be, I would have been in a crisis. I'd have been really mad at God. Maybe he wasn't. He was just keeping up. He was saying what he was supposed to. I don't believe that's true. How does he know God is so good? Jesus is so kind as you watch your wife struggle. Well, that's, that's, that's costly. That's costly faith. It's precious faith. It's more precious than gold. And it was purchased with the currency of heaven. At the bottom of your handout, bottom of your, um, I have a little, a little prayer. I want to read this to you or over you. Pray this with me. Our good Father, you know what we want. But if you want, if what you want is more for us than what we want, then please give us the desire to want what you want. And then in your grace, create in us the capacity to receive nothing less than all that you have for us in Jesus our Lord. Amen. And that's the end of my sermon. But it's not the end of this, this, my talk about this series. The truth is, we're talking about every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name, and nothing whispers Jesus' name like Job. But I don't think that Job knew what we know, or he would have, he would have whispered different things. Throughout his complaint, Job has said, I want a witness. 
I need a friend. What I want is for somebody to go to God on my behalf and just say to him, God, I think you've misunderstood our friend Job. You need to take the pressure off. I just need a friend to go to God like a friend for me. God, I need a mediator. I need an umpire, an ombudsman. I need an umpire. And you get the picture in your mind. This is exactly what he's asking for. I need the guy to come out to the center of the boxing ring with the two opponents and say, okay, gentlemen, come together, you know, bump hands. I want a clean fight. This is what Job wants. He wants an umpire, somebody who can make sure that the fight is fair because it's not fair. Job can't fight God. Every time, every time Job stands up, God knocks him down again. That's what he says. My, my flesh is full of his arrows, and I drink their poison. This isn't a fair fight. And even if I could contend with it, even if I could answer him, what am I going to say? Because it's not a fair fight. And I need somebody to come. This is what I want. I want somebody who can put their hand on God's shoulder and put their hand on my shoulder and say, fellas, we need a fair fight. And we say, oh, that's Jesus, because he was God and he's man. And I'd say, that's, that's good, that's good. He can stand in between us. Job said, what I, I know that my Redeemer lives, and on the end, at the end, at the end of all things, I'm going to stand here on this ground, in this flesh, and I'll see him. And we said that's a, a direct reference to the, to, the, uh, to the resurrection at the end of all things, and absolutely it is. But before that, this is what Job said. I need somebody to take a, a chisel and some stone, and I need them to mark down my complaint in this stone for me. We need to capture it for all time so that at the end, when my Redeemer comes, we can dust off the stone, and he can look at it, and he can say, oh, you see, you wronged Job. You didn't do him right. He was, he was innocent, and you did these things for him. His idea of this Redeemer is not somebody who's going to come and just make all things new. It's somebody who will vindicate him in the end. So there's whispers, and there's hope, but Job didn't get it at all. If Job knew what we know about the coming of the Son of Man, he would have asked for so much more. The son did not come to stand between his father and us and to say, okay, boys, fight, fight nice, fight fair. He came that we would know that his father's desire was to be one with us, that his father's heart loves us, and that his father wants us to be with him, not to stand between us, but to join us together. That's what the Son of Man came into the world to give. He didn't come at the end. He came into the middle. He stepped into our history so that we would know who the Father really is. He came because his Father sent him. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old passed away. Behold, the new has come, and all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, that is, or namely, that in Christ God was reconciling to the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
The instigator, the troublemaker at the beginning of Job was none other than the Almighty. He's the one who started the trouble. He's the instigator and the initiator. And when it comes to our redemption, to the salvation that he purchased for us, you need to know that it wasn't because we have a nice Jesus who came to protect us from his mean father. We have a father who loves us and loves us enough to send his son that we might be one with him. God is the one who is the doer of these things. And it is in Christ that God reconciles the world to himself. If your image of the Father is somehow, in some way, and to whatever degree your image of the Father is different than your image of the Son, then you have a wrong image of them both. Because Jesus is the exact representation, the exact image of his Father. In South Jersey terms, he is the spitting image of his dad. My mother-in-law used to say, he's his spit. It doesn't make any sense to me. The spitting image of his Father, that's who the son is. That's who he came to be. He said to Philip, have I been with you so long and you haven't seen the father? You've seen the father, you've seen me. The son came that we might see the glory of God in his own beautiful face. And he came to show us his father. His father, who he is crazy about. And what he wants for us is that we in this life would know his father the way he knows his father. That's the father he came to show us. That's the reason he came. His father is life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, grant that in this life we might come to know you as your son knows you. That this life would not be a waste. That we might know you the way that you came to show you to us. That is much to ask. And yet it's exactly why and how you made us to be. God, give us the desire of our hearts, the desire of your heart. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.